Good morning, everybody. Hey, happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. I know Mother's Day is hard for some of you who've lost a child or aren't able to get pregnant. That's been our story. I get it. But everybody got here because they have a mom, so we're glad you're here. This is your last chance, man. If there's a mom in your life and you haven't taken the time to go out of your way to say thank you, it'd be a good time to run out after church. Hey, I got to get gas on the way home and don't buy something at the gas station. Think of something else. All right. Anyway, that's all the help you get. I am going to, uh, I'm going to call an audible. So uh, we were supposed to do one more week in the book, Songs of Solomon, and the series we're doing called Make Love Work. We're going to uh, shorten it by one week, and I'm going to do something different next week. I'll tell you about that when we get there next week. Uh, but So what I'm going to do is try to cover a lot of ground, a lot of ground, and wrap two messages into one because I think it's possible. And part of that comes from, uh, as I studied even deeper where we were going, uh, if you thought the honeymoon night was steamy, let's just say it gets steamier. And since I wasn't prepared by warning you that there was a steamier section coming, uh, I, I thought, well, you know what, we'll just we'll get up to that moment, we'll skip, and we'll get to the end of it. So, um, the book is extremely graphic of what's about to come up, and it follows on the heels of this. So, if you're visiting with us, let me set this up. We're in the book, Songs of Solomon. It's a love song written by King Solomon. This guy wrote a lot. I mean, he wrote the book, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, Proverbs. He wrote this a love song. We are told in, in Kings that he wrote a thousand and five love songs, or songs, not love songs, songs, and this was his best one. And we've been studying it because it's in the Bible. And so we know that there is truth in this. God would not allow this in his book if there wasn't wisdom for us. And what is amazing is even though this is almost 3,000 years old, there's so much still in it. So we find this couple, they meet each other, they fall in love, they woo each other, they're trying to win over each other's affections, they pursue all the way up to the wedding day, they get married, they've kept themselves pure, and on the honeymoon night, we talked about that, they have a beautiful night together, and then we get into the next chapter, chapter five, and they have their first fight. And their fight is this, in case you don't know, he's working too much. Sound familiar? And he comes home late at night, one night, it's probably midnight or later, his hair is wet with dew, that's how we know it's late in the summer, that's normal for that part of the country, that time of the year, and he comes home knocking on the door and he's like, hey baby, I've been working hard, you, you want to you spend the night together? And she says, my feet are clean, I've already washed them off, I've already changed my clothes, I'm already in bed, I was already in sleep, no. First fight. He reaches into the doorway, he's got some perfume on his hand and he leaves it on the door and he leaves. And he doesn't get angry, and he doesn't push himself around, and he doesn't intimidate her. And her heart changes because instead of him coming at her all angry, and I'm going to win this fight, and I'm, this is a right in marriage, you've got to do this for me. I read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that's a thousand years later. <laughs> and then the Lord spoke. Thank you. <laughs> Just to emphasize the fact, he said, Solomon... This is your beloved. All right. That also happened on the honeymoon night, but you have to listen to that message to know what I'm talking about. So what happens then is her heart changes, and she runs to the door, and she flings open, and Solomon has left. Now she's anxious. She's insecure. Now think about the beauty of this. 3,000-year-old book. You'd think, what in the world could a 3,000-year-old book have to say to me today? What is she insecure about? I said no to him. I didn't meet his physical needs. Has he run to the arms of another lover? So she's anxious. 
And she calls on her friends. They're often called the New Living Translation, the, the young women of Jerusalem. They're her friends. She calls them, and we don't have this for, for a slide, but in verse 8, she says, if you find him, tell him I'm weak with love. And we're going to pick up there at the end of their fight because there is so much wisdom. Again, this message may feel a little ADD because I want to hit kind of three major points between here and the end of the book. There are three points of wisdom that come out of the book. But look at her friend's response. Verse 9, why is your lover better than all the others, they say? Oh, woman of rare beauty, what makes your lover so special that we must promise this? So this is her friend. She said, if you find him, tell him I'm looking for him. And, and they say, now notice this, why is your lover better than all the others? Ladies, real quick, this, I've been beating up the guys, all right? This wisdom is just for you. Ladies, when you're mad at your husband, who do you run to? Do you run to your mom? Do you run to your aunt? Do you run to your friends? And when you run to them and you're venting about all the things that he's done to justify your anger, what do your friends do? What Shulamith's friends do is they ask her a probing set of questions. Where is my lover? If you find him, tell him I'm looking for him. Tell us what is so great about him. You notice what her friends don't say. Well, you, what did he do to deserve this? What, what, why did you uh, have this fight in the first place? That man, that scoundrel. La serpiente en el hierba. He's a snake in the grass. I probably said that all wrong. I don't speak Spanish. I, I speak Dora, okay? <laughs> do your friends encourage you in your anger? Do your friends encourage you in your frustration? Or do your friends encourage you to restore and rebuild what is broken? Because that's what her friends are doing. Hey, honey, baby, tell us what's so great about him. Come on, sit down with us. Have some coffee. Remember what's so great about him? And she answers the question with what's so great. And I won't read all of it. You can go on to read all the ways she thinks Solomon is fantastic. I'll just cover a few of them. Look at verse 10, 11, and 12. My lover, oh, he is dark and dazzling. So she starts by saying, oh, he is a beautiful specimen. He's better than 10,000 others. You know, when you're angry, isn't that what you need to remember? I chose him out of all the other options. Why? Because he was better. Are you angry at him right now? Of course you are, but he is better than anybody else. Verse 11, his head is finest gold, which is a weird analogy. <laughs> You're like, uh, and his hair is black, wavy hair is black as a raven. I was, I picture like an 80s hair guy, like this is John Bon Jovi, I don't know why. So all you parents out there with, you know, struggling to get your kid's hair short, sorry, um, but his head is fine as gold. What do we know about Solomon? He's a great king who's very wealthy, but more than worldly wealth, what does he have according to the Bible? Wisdom. She's praising, oh, he is better than anybody else. He is so incredibly smart and, oh, man, I love his hair. All right. I don't know. Whatever. Okay, verse 12. His eyes sparkle like doves besides springs of water. They are set like jewels washed in milk. 
We're about to come up on the passage here towards the end of the book where we finally find out her name is Shulamite. We haven't learned it up to this point. He calls her the Shulamite or the girl from Shulamith and, uh, or Shulamah, and that's the place where believe she's from. The word Shulamith or Shulamite and the word Solomon actually have the same root in Hebrew, and they both mean shalom. And what we begin to see through this book is the two are separate, but as it progresses through the book, the two have become one, to the point where even their names are almost inseparable. When I went to get married, my wife said, uh, I'm considering hyphenating our name. So she'd be Rachel Renee Mobley Nickerson. And I said, I think that would be a fantastic idea if you want to marry someone else. <laughs> Ouch. And she laughed too. I said, I'm serious, with a smile on my face. I said, we are going to be one, not two. We're going to be one. The closer these two get together, the more you see they are one. What did he call her eyes? Doves. What did she, in, in chapter 5 on the honeymoon night, when she opens herself to him and they experience marital bliss, often her purity is described in terms of water? How many times has he described her body like jewels? What are we finding in this passage? Her praise of him is mirroring back his praise of her. The two are truly becoming one flesh. And what's happening is as she reflects on Solomon, she's not reflecting on the fact that he showed up late. She's not reflecting on the fact that he blew it or that he worked too late. We're not even told Solomon was right or wrong. Solomon doesn't even deal with that in this love song. What he does deal with is the path towards restoration has to do with remembering the person you love. Not for what they've currently done, but for who they really are. There's this thing in marriage that's going to come up at some point. So if those of you who are dating or single and you want to be married, you need to know this. At some point, you're going to have a fight. I know it's hard to imagine for some of you, but someday you're going to have a real fight. And the path towards restoration is the same every single time. Somebody must swallow their pride first. That's the answer. And I've said this in previous messages. I'll say it <clears throat> to my last breath. Men, I believe God has called you to go first. And that's hard. But I believe God has called you to go first. Even though here we see in this passage, she goes first. I believe God has called you to go first because God has called you, men, to mirror the love of God towards your brides. And when God wanted to be restored to you, even though he had not sinned against you, what happened? He came first in the Son of God. And he died on a cross. So he built the bridge for you to walk across. And I believe God is calling you men to build a bridge for your wives to walk across. And so this weekend, it was Mother's Day weekend. And I got to set this up because everything in me wants to let my pride tell you I'm a better person than the story will look. So my wife's birthday is in April, late April, and then obviously Mother's Day is today. And knowing those two things are back to back, I have to plan strategically for how am I going to bless her twice and not break the bank. So <clears throat> I had this fantastic plan that I came up with earlier this year about sending my wife away to fulfill one of my, if you were here, New Year's commitments to sending my wife on a trip. And I was going to plan all of this behind her back secretly in a, in, a, in, a, secretly in a good way and then send her on the surprise vacation. But some things were going on in our family, and I felt the need to go to her and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking about for Mother's Day before I make this purchase. Does this sound like a blessing to you? And she let me know she's extremely appreciative that it was not going to be a blessing for her. That it wasn't the right time, it was the right thing, it was the wrong time. 
So I had to call an audible on her birthday kind of at the last minute, and I was kind of pulling things together. And I was feeling, okay, Mother's Day a few weeks out, I don't want to do the same thing. So I was planning ahead, started looking ahead, and uh, I, I kind of got in mind, hey, I think it'd be cool to, to bless her in this way. But I, I, I didn't want to get it wrong. 17 years of marriage, I have gotten it wrong before, amazingly. As I'm teaching you what not to do, I've gotten it wrong. So many of my wisdom comes from failed experiences. So I went to my wife and said, hey, here's what I was kind of thinking about on Mother's Day. I was kind of thinking this, or kind of thinking this. And I know that ruins all the surprise, but I'd rather she be happy on Mother's Day. And the response was, those are fine. <laughs> Men, let me translate. For those of you who are still young and haven't figured this out yet, that means it wasn't up to par. My wife is just an extremely gracious person, extremely gracious. She was just letting me know if I followed through my plans, it wasn't going to make her feel blessed. Now, she'd be appreciative, but if I really want her to feel blessed, I got to get into her heart. I got to figure out what she wants. So I called an audible. It's time to figure out a different plan. So I came up with another plan. I went to her a couple days later and said, I got an idea. Mother's Day weekend instead of Mother's Day. She already likes the sound of that, right? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you one-on-one -on -one time with every single boy. So you can go on a date with three boys. You can go on a date with each one of them. I'm going to take the, the other two each time, and then you and I will go on a date. Somebody volunteered their time for that. We did that yesterday. And then Sunday, you can just have a few hours to do whatever you want to do. And she said, that sounds like a fantastic Mother's Day. And I said, We can, we can move on and just pray. We're done. Uh, would you like to give your life to Jesus today? Let's talk about that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're still working this out. But here's the part where I messed up. Okay, so thank you. I got all that right. Men, take note. Now, don't take note here as well. So Friday, she goes on a date with the first boy. It's after school. I send him out. I'm thinking in my head, because we didn't set a time, two or three hours at most. I have her blessing to tell this story. I'm thinking two or three hours at most. When she comes back and it's almost five hours... It's really messing up the time frame, and I'm worn out. It's been a long week. I've had a couple of late nights. I'm grumpy. And I'm in the backyard trying to get some things done that need to be done in the backyard, as well as watch these two boys who are clearly bored out of their mind because dad's not playing with them. I am not being a great father or husband at this moment. She walks in, and I say, hey, baby. She says, hi. And I say, so I didn't think you'd be gone four and a half hours. First words out of my mouth. After, hey, baby. Yeah. She said, you know, it's not really a blessing if I feel stressed when I come back. Touche. She said, do you need to go in and take a nap? <laughs> Four and a half hours of two kids. I don't know how you do it. Yes, I do, but I'm not going to. We made a commitment. You're going to go. A couple minutes later, she asked me a question about the project I was working on. She thought I didn't see something. <clears throat> I have her permission to tell this story. I looked at her, and instead of answering kindly and assuming the best, I assumed that she was being condescending. I assumed that she was trying to point out something she didn't think I saw, and I didn't take her question to face value, and I snapped at her. In the backyard, probably loud enough for neighbors to hear or kids to hear. Not that anybody's ever done this before. And then I noticed between then and the next half hour when she got in the car with the other boy and they started getting out the door that she was very cold towards me. And I thought that was unfair. I took the boys all day. <laughs> yeah, some of you are married, you know. When it dawned on me through the power of the Holy Spirit that perhaps I had not been kind or gentle or patient or loving with my bride. 
So as she went to go, I said, hey, are you mad at me? <laughs> and let's just say she didn't hear me or chose not to respond. I don't know which way it went. And I walked over, I gently touched her hand, and I felt her start to pull away, and I said, wait, I'm sorry. I know that was rude. I know it was harsh. I want you to go and have a fantastic time. Yes, I'm tired. That's not an excuse. I'm sorry. She looked at me and then let me know why she was hurt. I said, that's all fair. I said, why don't we talk about this later, though? You relax. We'll be fine. Have a great time. I got the boys. She hugged me and thanked me. In order for a marriage to make it, somebody has to be the first one to say, I was wrong. Somebody has to go first. Otherwise, here's what happens. You end up carrying around the bitterness, the pain, the resentment for a long time. And there are times that you will actually bury down deep a fight that happened early. And what happens is, especially for those of you who've been Christians for a long time, because of mercy, because of grace, because you've been moved by the heart of God, you want to forgive and you want to redeem and you just want to restore, so you just move on. But what happens is you carry the bitterness still with you as you move on because you haven't really forgiven. You haven't really released. Are you with me? The Bible talks about restoration, not just release. So when you release somebody of the debt that they've accrued against you, God's not just looking for you saying, you know what? I'm not going to hold this against you anymore. God's actually looking for the point where you have forgiven and they have sought forgiveness and there's true restoration between you. And the only way you get there is for somebody to swallow their pride and say, I am sorry. Now, she comes to Solomon. She finally finds him. We get to there in chapter 6. And I don't have this verse for you, but if you have a Bible open or if you have a Bible app open, you'll notice in verse 3, she finally comes to him in just a couple verses. She says to him, uh, I missed you. We're here. Let's be together. And in verse 3, she says, I am my lover's and my lover is mine. He browses among the lilies. It's a beautiful statement. She says, uh, wow, I just love being in your presence. There's a statement here. I'm yours. You're mine. Look, we were fighting. We were separated. Let's be one again. And then he responds. And look at how he responds. Men. Look at how he responds. Chapter 6, verse 4. You are beautiful, my darling, like the lovely city of Tirzah. Yes, as beautiful as Jerusalem, the two most powerful, beautiful, ornate cities in the day. As majestic as an army with billowing banners. Turn your eyes away, for they overpower me. I'll just stop there. So she comes to him and basically says, hey, honey, baby, I love you. I'm sorry. You are mine and I am yours. I, this whole thing, it shouldn't have happened. I'm sorry. She says, I'm sorry. And he looks at her and he says, you are beautiful. You are beautiful like none that's out there. But notice this one right here. Turn your eyes away. Her eyes, if you remember on their honeymoon night, he talks about her eyes and her eyes are intoxicating to him. Notice what he's saying here. It's beautiful. It's poetic. Men, take note. What he's saying is your eyes overpower me. He's saying, don't look at me because I want to be restored to you and I don't want you to think this is about being intimate. Ladies, does that not speak power to you? I don't just want to have a makeup moment. I want to know that you love me for me. And Solomon's going out of his way to say, 
I want to be restored to you not so that we can get together and have another honeymoon night. I just want to be restored to you because you're precious to me. And so then he starts to praise her in the exact same ways he praises her on their honeymoon night right before they um, share their intimate moment. Except, except, I'm going to read it to you, he leaves out all the sensual parts. So he praises her hair and he praises her teeth and he praises her beauty and he leaves out all the other body parts. Now, we get to chapter 7, it's a whole different ballgame because their uh, restoring to each other creates a very, very graphic and intimate moment. I told you, we'll skip that. But I'm saying that he is wise here. He's not leveraging the pain to manipulate her to get her into the bed. Instead, he truly wants to be restored, so he's praising her for her beauty. He's praising her for her love. He's praising her for how great she is. And it leads to the other thing. But he's being very, very, very tender with his bride. Here's the words themselves. Turn your eyes away from me, for they overpower me. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are as white as sheep. They are freshly washed. Your smile is flawless, each tooth matched with his twin. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. Even among 60 queens and 80 concubines and countless young women, I would still choose my dove, my perfect one the favorite of her mother. You know what he just said? You were insecure because we had a fight and the fight was over not having some intimacy together. You can trust, honey. I'm never going to run to the arms of somebody else. I am here for you. You know what fighting creates in both men and women? Insecurity. It does. When God created a man and a woman to be united as one, and then they have a fight, and insecurity breaks out, and especially in our day where divorce is actually not just an option, but a common option. And people start to think, as ladies, you turn to your friends and say, well, he did this, and they say, well, you ought to kick into the curb, girl. He ain't worth all that. And as he goes to his buddies, or he turns on the computer, or he sees a magazine at work in the bathroom, or whatever it is, can she trust men that you will run to her arms? Can he trust women that even if he works late, invests in all the wrong things, you will not give up on him? Security in marriage leads to the beautiful intimacy of chapter 7. So, he goes on and he says, you're like none others. There's nobody in the world as good as you. You could trust me, honey. The young women, it says, verse 9, the young women see her and praise her, even queens and royal concubines, you sing her praises. Verse 10, notice what happens. After he has praised her beauty, he's not looking for the intimacy. You are the best. Trust me. You can trust me. I'm not running the arms of anybody else. You are the most important one for me. We get to verse 10, and he says, who is this arising like the dawn, as fair as the moon, as bright as the sun, as majestic as an army with billowing banners? She is literally coming alive in his presence. Because she came in with a heavy heart. She came in with anxiety. She came in with burden. What's going to happen now that my lover left me? Where did he go and what's going to happen? But now in his presence, she has no longer carried the sorrow, this guilt. She, he, her guilt, her sorrow has been removed. You think about why some people translate this book as though it's Jesus talking to the church. It totally makes sense. Because Jesus comes in and he removes the sin and he removes the shame and he removes the barriers between you and him and he sings your praises. And what happens? We come alive. We come alive in God's presence when he does that. And Solomon is doing this for his bride. 
It's letting her know, I love you. I will always love you. I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. And she responds in the most powerful way possible. And if you really want to know, I recommend you grab a commentary sometime and read about the next 15 or so verses. They are extremely graphic. As she dances for him, and then they share a moment together. And we're going to skip that and pick up chapter 7, <laughs> verse 10. Now we find them possibly laying in bed together. It could be weeks, months, years, or even the next morning. We're not sure. That's the thing about the book. It doesn't tell us exactly where we are in time. It just tells us we're further in the relationship. And we find them probably waking up in each other's arms. And she says this beautiful thing to him, this beautiful thing. I am my lover's, and he claims me as his own. This has come up multiple times. Again, this is just a statement of the two becoming one. I realized that was four. The two becoming one. No math in Bible college. Two become one. And she's just a statement about she belongs to him. He belongs to her. She feels safe in his presence. Men, let me just ask you a question real quick. Do the ladies in your, wife, in your life feel safe in your presence? Do they feel protected and provided for and cared for? Or have you made them feel safe or unsafe and insecure? She loves being with Solomon. And what was their fight all about? How late he worked. She felt like he was giving his time and attention to something else. He probably felt, though we're not told this, he probably felt like, I'm just trying to provide for you. I'm trying to care for the kingdom. I have this awesome responsibility that God gave me. Who's guilty? Songs of Solomon never tells us. All it tells us is when the two are restored, she comes to him in love, he responds in love, and the two are united. Okay, help me out here. Men, how many of you struggle with putting far too much time and energy into your jobs? Some of you, thank you. Some of you are afraid to raise your hands, aren't you? Here's the reality. Most men I know, most men I know are leaders by nature. They pour in far too much time and energy into their jobs. And part of the reason they do it is they get way too much fulfillment from their jobs. That's a sinful part. But they also believe they have the responsibility to provide and to, and to take care of their families, to work hard, to be responsible. Sometimes you work, some of you work for bad companies, and they just don't care about you and your family. They just burden you, burden you, burden you, burden you, burden you. I get it. I get it. And what you're about to see is unbelievable wisdom from the Song of Solomon from 3,000 years ago for what to do about that. Take a look. Verse 11. Come, my love, let us go out to the fields and spend the night among the wildflowers. The word wildflowers there can actually be translated among the villages. So what she says to him is they're laying in bed or whatever it is, they're having a moment together, somehow they're connecting, and she says to him, let us get away together. In other words, I know you've been working way too much, I know you're pouring into all these things, we need time together. Let us get away. Now, the fact that you can translate this word here as among the villages, it's very possible she's intentionally picking somewhere they can go together where he can both work and be with her. That's why I'm saying that. She is now put down the guard of being defensive about the fact that he works so much, and she's getting creative about trying to connect with him. Remember, in the early parts of the book, he pursues her. But now, in the later parts of their marriage, she's pursuing him. 
More often than not, men do the pursuing. And by the way, it should be this way. Men do the pursuing before the marriage, but women typically really are the ones who take care of the home. My wife does a far better job of spoiling me and pursuing me and caring for me, and she is phenomenal at it. And this beautiful wife here says to her husband, come away, honey, let's spend some time together. And she picks something where, theoretically, he could be engaged to work if he needed to be, but he's not going to want to be. Verse 12, let us get up early and go to vineyards to see if the grapevines have budded, if the blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. Baby, you will not want to be focused on work any longer. Why not? Verse 13, there the mandrakes give off their fragrance, and the finest fruits are at our door. New delights as well as old, which I have saved for you, my love. Er, love, er, sorry. So the mandrakes are a fruit that has a um, certain anatomical appearance in its root system. And because of that, it was often used in ancient um, rituals. They believed that they ate mandrakes and then partook of each other, that they would get pregnant. She is inviting him through very ancient erotic language to say, hey, baby, the finest fruits are at our door. Let's take the mandrakes. Let's get away. Then it gets even better. She says, I got some things in store for you. New delights as well as old. Remember our honeymoon? I got all that, and I got some new tricks up my sleeve. And then this whole phrase here about the door can actually literally refer to the hidden things, not just a literal door, but can literally translate be the hidden things. It's like she's saying to him, I got some stuff I want to show you, some stuff you know about, some stuff you don't know about, and I've been saving it for you, my lover. Want to get away? Now, what do you think Solomon said? Exactly. Chapter 8 is about them connecting and spending time together. It gets even more graphic. I won't go into it, but we know in their culture that the mother would take the daughter aside, take note on this, and she would teach the daughter about the honeymoon night, and she invites him in chapter 8. She says, come away, and you can learn the things mom taught me and maybe even teach me some more. Okay, so what we're to learn from this is beautiful because what we see in this chapter is the female has stepped out of the place of being angry about his job, and she has invited, pursued Solomon and connecting with him in a very personal way. Now, here's the thing, man. You may be going, brother, why are you pre not preaching this chapter more? Why aren't we spending a whole sermon on this? Because, look, far too many men, and I've had a conversation with one this past week, far too many men want to use intimacy to beat up their wives. You are far too quick, men who know your Bible, to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and say, your body is not your own. You should not withhold yourself from your spouse except for, for prayer in order to seek the Lord and then come together immediately so that you're not tempted. You are quick to go there and hold that over your wife's head as if she's failing you. Songs of Solomon shows us that you only get to this moment after men, you have loved her, cared for her, provided for her, told her how special she is, showed her how much she means to you, then she responds in kind. It's beautiful, isn't it? I'm here to tell you that a marriage can last a lifetime. One marriage, whichever one you're in right now, that one can last the rest of your life if, if, if you're willing to heed Paul's advice. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 7 and take a look real quick at some of what Paul says there. Now, as we turn there, 1 Corinthians 7, if you have a Bible, you can turn to that page, or if you use your app, I'm only going to show part of this, but i got to set this up, 
in just a little bit of time I have left. In, First Corinthian, or sorry, in Corinth, the city of Corinth is one of the most immoral cities in the history of the world. It would be similar to like a modern-day Las Vegas. There are temples abounding where people go in and spend time with temple prostitutes. That's why we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we find immorality rampant in the church. Actually, you'll find this 5 and 6. So much so that there's a man in the church who apparently has come to faith in Jesus, and he's bragging about his sexual sin. He's literally bragging and saying, isn't it great that because of grace, I can do whatever I want? And the man is apparently having a relationship with his dad's wife, most likely his stepmother, not his birth mother. And the church is bragging. Isn't it great? Because of grace in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what he does. And Paul lays into them and says, how dare you abuse grace as if it doesn't matter what you do? And then in chapter 6, he says, don't you know that when you become one with another person through intimacy, through sexuality, that, that don't you know when you do that physically, you're actually doing that in more ways than you know? Spiritually, something is happening. Emotionally, something is happening. And then we get into chapter 7, and he says, look, my command for all of you is that when you come to faith in Jesus, stay however you are. But some of you can't handle that. Some of you are single and you come to faith in Jesus and your bodies are burning with lust. And Paul says, oh, I wish all of you could be like me. I wish you could have control of your bodies. But some of you don't. So get married. Get married. Each man who's struggling with lust ought to have his own wife. What's he trying to build to? A man and a wife ought to be in a relationship together. It's mutual support. It's mutual agreement. And that's when he gets to it. And he says, men, realize your bodies are not just your own. They're God's, chapter 6, and they're hers, chapter 7. Ladies, same thing he says. Your bodies are not your own. They're God's first, and then they're his second. This is why marriage is so important. Living together is so dangerous, and dating without boundaries can be brutal for your heart. Because God wants you to have a relationship where two can become one under the covenant with God. And then he says this, verse 32. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him, how to please God. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. Here's the best question, men, you can ask if you want to be happily married to the day you die. What needs does my wife have? And how can I please her? And if you don't know, ask her. Honey, what needs do you have that I'm not meeting right now? How could I please you? As I sit and talk to men, especially men who have cheated on their wives, they are so quick to blame. Well, we don't do this anymore. You know, maybe it's only once a month or every six weeks or every couple months. We'll get to that in a second. And as I hear their stories, well, she's super busy with the kids, and she's super busy with her job, and she's super busy with taking care of the house and all these other things, but she won't meet my needs, so therefore I blame, 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 blame. And part of me says to you men who are there, you're on the brink of making this terrible, terrible sin against God and your spouse. Would you just stop for a minute and just ask her, what do you need, honey? How could I serve you? Look at verse 34. His interests are divided. Why? Because you have to serve God and your wife. 
That's a command by God. In the same way, though, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. What's he saying? You who are widowed, divorced, single, man, you could be all in on God. Paul's saying go all in on God. Serve him with all you have in purity. Don't give in in ways that keep you from being pure, but serve God. That doesn't mean burn yourself out, go 90 hours a week serving God. That's not what he's saying, but he's saying you don't have to be divided. You don't have to put God first and husband second. You put God first, God second. But then he says, but a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. Ladies, earlier in this chapter, Paul said, some of you men are struggling with purity and some of you women are struggling with purity. Therefore, you should get married. And a man and a wife should come together on a regular basis. And the only time you should not be coming together is when you both agreed to not be together in an intimate way in order to seek the Lord in a prayer. And then as soon as that time of prayer and fasting is over, you come together so that you don't give the enemy a foothold. Men, do not take these verses of beat up your wife, serve her, love her, meet her needs. But women, I am begging you, I'm begging you to follow in the songs of Solomon footsteps. One of the greatest gifts you can give your husband is the gift of intimacy with him. And perhaps you need a retreat or a date to do that. I would encourage you ladies to be the pursuer, the planner, to think about it. How can I get a babysitter? How can we get away for a weekend? Maybe even tell him, I got some old ideas and some new ones for you too, honey. You'll get his attention. He'll quit the night out with the guys. He'll put the job stuff on hold. He'll call in dead, whatever he has to do. <laughs> I'm sorry, I died last night. <laughs> but I'm going to be alive this weekend. <laughs> Ladies, I am not putting a burden on you. I'm not saying it's your fault if he is unfaithful. I am saying you play a part in guarding his heart. You play a part in protecting him from the evil one. That's what Paul's saying. It's true. And I realize some of you men are married to women who have not been concerned about your needs. Ladies, I know some of you are so insecure from others who have hurt you. I encourage you when the kids go to bed to maybe plan something or ask him, honey, what are your needs and how can I better serve you? If a man and a woman will come together under God and say, how can I better serve you? What needs do you have that I can meet? And if that person feels safe, safe enough to answer either direction, you will make it to your last day. Married. It'll happen. That's why Paul closes with this. Verse 35. I am saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. What's Paul trying to say? Paul's trying to say God is of first importance. But men, you will have a hard time serving God if you're not loving your wife. That's why we learn in Peter and other places, men, your prayers will be hindered if you are not caring for your wife. Ladies, you will have a hard time serving the Lord if you are neglecting serving your husbands. So what's Paul trying to get to? Serve each other so that you can go all in and serve God. 
Paul said, look, I'm not trying to create a burden on you. I'm just trying to help you become the best that you can be. You want to be the best you can be? Love and serve your spouse, and then you'll love and serve God better. You'll find it easier, freer to love and serve God that way. But here's the reality. There are a lot of marriages who are struggling in this room. Some of you are on the brink of ending. Some of you watching this or listening to this online. And you may be moved to tears struggling in your heart. Some of you, you're doing okay, but you're just off one or two degrees right now, maybe like my wife and I, and what it's going to take is just one of you, just one of you to walk over and grab the other one's hand and say, I love you, and I am so sorry. I hurt you in this way. I wounded you like this. I should never have spoken harshly. I've been withholding myself from you because I've been angry and bitter, and I've let this bitterness grow, and I'm ready to let it go and just say, I love you. Can we talk? Can we work this out? And what we want to do is we want to give you the opportunity to do that in this place. There are some of you, I realize this is a marriage series and you're single, so this message falls at a different place for you. Let me just give quick directions. Stick with me, please. We have communion set up all around this room. There are boxes on those tables for your offering. I want to encourage you to put your money in the offering, but if you're married and you're married and your spouse is here, would you grab your spouse's hand? Take them to the table. Take the bread, take the juice, go anywhere in the room you want to go. You want to stay at the table, do it. You want to go back to your seat, fine. You want to kneel here at the front of the stage. Seek God, go to a corner. Men, I want to challenge you to take the lead. If you don't take the lead in your home spiritually ever before, now is your shining moment. Take her hand. Say, I love you. For the rest of my life, I love you. And you kneel down before Jesus and you confess whatever you need to confess together. And if you are on the brink of ending today and nobody knows about it, you let today be the moment you change and you say, I am never going to quit on us. Now, for those of you who are single in the room, there's a lot of wisdom in these passages about purity and about going all in with God. And I want to encourage you to not just waste this moment. This is not just about married couples. God is calling you to a lifestyle of purity so you can go all in with him. That's part of what Paul is saying there. If you keep yourselves pure, you can go all in with God. But if you don't keep yourselves pure, you're distracted by the, the lusts of this world. You're a divided man. You're a divided woman. And he's saying, put those things behind you and go all in with God. And I'm begging you to take communion right now and fall on your knees and ask God to forgive you, redeem you, restore you, and set you on fire for him. And if you're single in this place, divorced, widowed, whatever, and you're doing good with God, would you just take this time to thank God for his mercy and pray over some of the married couples in this room and single people who are struggling to no end. And what I want to do right now is just pray over you. And while I pray, uh, we're going to take some time to sing. Listen, when I'm done, we're going to sing. You got time. You got, I think, two songs. You don't have to rush. Take your time. You need to stay in the room after the service? Fine. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I know this message falls in a lot of different places. There are couples who are struggling with intimacy right now. They're struggling because they've been so busy fighting and being bitter and angry at each other that they aren't able to come together and be one. Kids have gotten in the way. Jobs have gotten in the way. Hobbies have gotten in the way. Everything's in the way. But all those things are just excuses. The reality is we become lazy at serving each other. We become prideful and hard-hearted. We're afraid to say, I was wrong and I am sorry. God, break us of our pride. Lord, I pray right now. 
Would you use this message even in this place to inspire and draw deeper this relationship between men and women in this room? God, for my single friends, widowed, divorced, never been married, God, I pray that you would give them the strength to be pure in this world and to serve you with all their heart, to realize they are in a unique season and have a gift to offer the church by going all in with you. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' holy name.